A new book reveals how to recognize and defeat the evil of communism and other totalitarian regimes like Putin's Russia. The Triumph of Good, Cain, Abel, and the End of Marxism, with commentary by the author, Thomas Cromwell. Chapter 7 Jesus in the Christian Era Global Enlightenment Accelerates the Mission of Jesus Jesus is the most significant person ever to have lived. Not only is he the source of truth for billions of Christians worldwide, he is revered and worshipped as the personal saviour for believers who hope to achieve the kingdom of heaven. The moral teachings of Jesus form the internal basis for Western civilization. Their great influence is due to the fact that he lived fully by his own precepts. He practiced perfectly what he preached. Thus, although he was killed at the young age of 33, his words and deeds stand as the absolute standard of faith and virtuous conduct to this day. Why was Jesus so significant? Essentially, he brought a new standard of purity and understanding into the world of alienated humanity. There was an unprecedented depth to his teaching that reflected his intimacy with God and consequent grasp of the profound meanings of life, human purpose, and destiny. In Hebrews 3, 5, 6, it says, Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ was faithful over God's house as a son. End quote. However, neither Jesus' moral rectitude nor the many miracles he performed in healing people persuaded the religious or political establishments of Israel to accept him and his teaching. Why was this? In terms of the providential history we have traced thus far, the rejection of Jesus was consistent with the pattern of a faithful Abel being the target of Cain-type jealousy and resentment. As in Cain's murder of Abel, when the unrestrained self-centeredness of the people of Israel was fanned into full-blown rage, it ended in the murder of Jesus. When looked at from this perspective, there is a fundamental and irreconcilable contradiction between two traditional Christian beliefs about Jesus. First, that Jesus came to be King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and to sit upon the throne of David in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies, and second, that he fulfilled this mission by dying on the cross. How can both be true? Surely the crucifixion of Jesus was a failure to fulfill the God-given responsibility to welcome and follow the Messiah. If so, how can one believe that it was God's will? The remorse and suicide of Judas after he realized the significance of having betrayed Christ gives us all the evidence we need to know that the crucifixion was not God's will, but a failure of human responsibility. Nevertheless, it has been taken as axiomatic by most Christians that Jesus was supposed to die on the cross as a sacrifice for the sins of humanity so that we can be saved. New section. The global impact of Jesus' premature death. 
It is not our purpose here to discuss the various beliefs and arguments about the nature of Jesus and the meaning of his crucifixion. Suffice it to say that the murder of Jesus was not only wrong, but resulted in a very significant delay in the providence. There is no clearer indication of this than in the anguished words of Jesus himself as he neared death on the cross. Quote, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. End quote. This raises the question, what would have happened if Jesus had not been killed, but instead was embraced by the people he came to save? One obvious result of the crucifixion was that Jesus never married or had a family of his own. Given his role as a replacement for Adam, there was a need for a replacement for Eve to complete the restoration of the original family. Undoubtedly, Christian history, and world history for that matter, would have been very different had Jesus established a model family and sinless lineage to serve as prototypes for humanity. Instead, the legacy of Jesus became the Christian religion that has contributed a great deal to humanity, but has always been vulnerable to the criticism that it falls short of achieving its own ideals. This inadequacy has resulted in a deep sense of frustration among the faithful, factionalism within the church, and the rise of powerful rivals in Islam and Marxism. This, then, is how we have to view the Christian era. It is a record of improvement, of better emerging from worse, but also of unprecedented conflicts and immeasurable human suffering. We have to be honest in recognizing that the conflicts within Christendom and between Christendom and other forces are to be blamed, at least in part, on the inadequate standard of Christian practice. Christian values were the primary moral force behind the Allies successfully confronting Nazism and Communism in the 20th century. But some features of Christian culture can be faulted for failing to prevent the rise of totalitarianism in the first place. Today we face the fresh challenge of seasoned Marxist regimes in China, North Korea and Cuba expanding in power while poisonous neo-Marxist ideology spreads through Judeo-Christian cultures. This materialist onslaught is the new frontier for Christianity, which has not stemmed this evil tide so far. The reasons why this is so need to be understood. In this chapter, we will trace the progress of the Christian era over the past two millennia, and in subsequent chapters, examine some of the global developments related to this history. A new section, the birth of Christianity. Christianity was born the day that Jesus died. Without his founder and leader there to teach and instruct them, the disciples and early followers had to seek guidance from the Holy Spirit, from the remembered words of Jesus, and from those who had lived and worked with him. Inevitably, factions developed, and sectarianism has been a major feature of Christianity ever since. One important issue the Church settled on early was that salvation belonged to everyone, not just the descendants of Jacob. This doctrine would empower the first great evangelist, Paul of Tarsus, who traveled through many parts of the Roman Empire, planting Christian churches among Jewish and Gentile populations alike. 
His example would be the model for Christian outreach over the centuries, eventually taking the new religion to every corner of the earth. A major milestone in the early history of the church occurred when Constantine became Roman Emperor in 312, and then, in 324, the sole ruler of the Eastern and Western empires. Constantine ended the persecution of Christians, and in 330 moved his capital to Byzantium, changing its name to Constantinople, now Istanbul. Under the influence of his Christian mother, he converted to Christianity on his deathbed in 337, becoming the first Christian emperor. Then, in 380, Eastern Emperor Theodosius signed a decree in front of Western Emperor Valentinian that made Christianity the state religion of the whole empire and punished the practice of pagan rituals. New section, the Great Schism. There were now five main Christian sees or jurisdictions, Jerusalem, Antioch, Alexandria, Constantinople, and Rome. Jesus had appointed Peter to lead his followers after his death, and since Peter died in Rome, it was the Roman church that claimed the mantle of Christian leadership. However, this claim was not accepted by the other four patriarchs, and in 1054, there was a formal schism between the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Churches, loosely centered on the ecumenical patriarch in Constantinople. The Catholic Church would become the largest and most influential Christian church in the world, while the Eastern Orthodox Church would branch out primarily in Eastern, Southeastern and Central Europe and parts of the Levant. However, there were several severe blemishes on the Catholic Church over the years, resulting in further divisions and conflicts. Two of the most damaging were the Crusades and the Inquisition, both of which contributed finally to the Protestant Reformation and the Catholic Counter-Reformation. A third blemish on the faith would come in the form of slavery, and in human practice that persisted for millennia and was exploited by Christian nations, both Catholic and Protestant, in pursuit of wealth and comfort. New section, the folly of the Crusades. The Crusades were initiated by the popes to regain control from the Muslims of the Holy Land of Jerusalem and the territory that had been Israel. Undoubtedly, many who led or participated in the Crusades did so with good intentions, but the 12 major crusades between 1096 and 1291 were characterized by horrific bloodshed. Not only did some of the crusades target Jewish communities in Europe and the Levant, justified by blaming the Jews for Jesus' death, but also the Eastern churches. In 1204, the Fourth Crusade attacked and sacked Constantinople, looting the churches, raping nuns, and committing other atrocities. The Crusades were an erroneous manifestation of Christianity's mission to bring truth and goodness to the earth. They failed to do any good and only served to deepen divisions within Christianity and between Christianity and other faiths such as Judaism and Islam. These divisions are clearly counter to the true purpose of the religion and they have created a legacy of resentment that casts a shadow over the relations among the three great monotheistic religions to this day. New section, the evil of the Inquisition. 
The humbling of the Catholic Church through the 70-year exile of the papacy to Avignon, which started in 1309 and was brought about by conflicts between Rome and the French monarchy, did not lead to an end to one of its worst abuses, the so-called Holy Inquisition. From the standpoint of the Church, this was intended as a movement of purification, forcing confessions and repentance for diversions from the true faith. However, many who refused to recant their heretical beliefs were tortured and executed, frequently by burning at the stake. The Inquisition started in 12th century France, when in 1231, Pope Gregory IX appointed the first Inquisitors of Heretical Depravity, as they were called, targeting the Cathar and Waldesian heretics. The Inquisition, which ran its course for some 700 years, would later spread to Italy, Spain and Portugal. On the Iberian Peninsula, the primary target was converts from Judaism and Islam, many of whom had been coerced into conversion and were believed to be unreliable members of the Church. Spain and Portugal even exported Inquisition courts to far-flung countries of their empires in Africa, Asia and the Americas notably in Goa in India, Peru and Mexico. This approach to heretics stained the Catholic Church and bled into wider society in the form of religious and ideological intolerance. Today, this prejudiced approach to the ideas of others has come full circle and we now suffer from a cancel culture in which dominant academic media and political institutions seek to control what people know and believe by preventing unwanted voices from being heard. And although the punishment for deviation from the accepted line has not yet reached inquisition levels, those who write or say what is other than politically correct are made to suffer personal attacks, destruction of their character, loss of work, and relegation to pariah status in society. News section, the inhuman practice of slavery. One of the great stains on Christian civilization was the enslavement of powerless people by the powerful. This ancient and barbaric practice became of particular value to European powers as they expanded their empires. A primary economic driver was the development of plantations in warmer climates outside Europe, in the Americas, Africa and Asia. These plantations required many workers and often the colonial powers turned to slavery to supply the needed labor. Justification for Christians to tolerate or even participate in this ungodly practice was taken from Paul's letters, in some of which he encouraged slaves to be loyal, in quotes, submit yourselves to their masters, in effect endorsing slavery. But for Christianity to accept rather than end the practice of one person owning another, especially when it preached that all people are children of God, was a very serious failure. Slavery debased the European colonial powers, as well as the colonies themselves. In the British colonies of America, for example, where the trade in African slaves was introduced by settlers, the framers of the Constitution had to accommodate the slave-owning states in order to forge a unitary nation. Nevertheless, it was the Christianity of the abolitionists and the majority of the wider population that stirred the conscience of the nation to end slavery, even at the cost of a civil war 
that resulted in more American deaths than the nation suffered in any other war. And it was as Christian nations that countries like Britain and America led the fight to end slavery around the world. New section, the Reformation and Counter-Reformation. The mistakes of the Catholic Church would inevitably lead to some believers calling for reform. Conscientious Christians could not accept the practices of the Inquisition or, more broadly, the anti-heretic policies of the Church in which dissidents were deemed damned and deserving of prison, torture, or even death. There was definitely no basis for these policies in the teachings of Jesus, who had told his disciples they should love even their enemies. More and more, critics of the Catholic Church emerged, and the Protestant Reformation movement was born. One of the first and most articulate critics of the papacy and Catholic Church was England's John Wycliffe. Among important contributions he made was the translation of the Bible from Latin into English. This made it widely available to the literate public and helped them access the teachings of Jesus directly, freeing them from the need to depend on the Church's interpretation of Latin scriptures. Wycliffe was opposed by the Church and after his death in 1384, the Council of Constance in 1415 orders his books burned and his remains disinterred from church property. John Hus, a Czech theologian and philosopher and rector of Charles University in Prague, was a sharp critic of the papacy, the Catholic Church and many of its practices. In particular, he was opposed to the practice of indulgences, through which a sinner could purchase forgiveness. He was tried at the 1415 Council of Constance, sentenced to death for heresy, and burned at the stake. The persecution of these early reformers had the opposite effect of what was intended. Instead of spreading fear of rebelling against the Church, it galvanized believers to pay attention to what the dissidents were saying. The Protestant Reformation movement really gained momentum when, in 1517, a German priest named Martin Luther nailed his 95 Thesis to a church door in Wittenberg, detailing criticisms of the practice of papal indulgences and other abuses by the church. For example, number 43 states, and I quote, Christians are to be taught that he who gives to the poor or lends to the needy does a better deed than he who buys indulgences, end quotes. The message was clear. A true Christian life is one of love and service, not seeking to pursue one's own salvation. Luther was followed by other reformers, such as Ulrich Fingli and John Calvin, both of whom lived in Switzerland. Churches that broke away from the authority of the Catholic Church became known as Protestant churches, and the second major Christian schism was underway. Over time, Protestant churches would split off from one another to create hundreds of denominations, each with its own take on the scriptures and how they should be interpreted and practiced. Some of these offshoots would be small, but others became major international organizations. A major feature of most Protestant churches would be pioneered by the Anabaptists, who insisted that the Catholic practice of child baptism was wrong. Only adults who could make a commitment of faith should be baptized. 
Some of the more radical Anabaptists practiced communal living. In general, they were highly committed to a rigorous religious discipline, and many groups, such as the Hutterites, Mennonites, Amish, and Brethren, fled persecution in Europe by migrating to a more welcoming America. Often the founders of new denominations were inspired and charismatic teachers who stirred the hearts of believers to make fresh commitments to the faith. Among the most prominent were John Wesley, who founded Methodism, and George Fox, who founded the Quakers. Some of the major denominations that became independent members of the Protestant family were Lutherans, Presbyterians, Anglicans or Episcopalians, Baptists, and a host of others. An organized response to the Protestant Reformation by the Catholic Church began with the Council of Trent in 1545 to 1563. Although many of the practices that had driven believers into the Protestant churches were retained, this council signaled that the Catholic Church recognized the need for its own internal reformation, or what would be called the Counter-Reformation. Among other short-term results, it led to the establishment of seminaries to provide better training for priests. New section. Christianity goes global. Thus, the Protestant Reformation set in motion a process of renewal within Western Christianity that has been broadly beneficial. It introduced the notion that members of the clergy and lay believers alike have a right to question ecclesiastical authority, to study the Bible in their own language, and to decide for themselves how best to fulfill their obligations as followers of Christ. Over time, the changes in Christianity have been massive, and the Church has grown to reach every corner of the world and to claim 2.4 billion adherents, making it the largest religion in the world. Christianity has inspired democracy and the rule of law, as well as concern for the less fortunate. Nevertheless, despite its global presence, it has been only partly able to prevent wars, overcome crime and corruption, and deliver full equality and justice to communities of its own followers, let alone to the world as a whole. With a 2,000-year history, Christianity has come a long way, but its followers still long to attain the ideal world that was lost in the fall and has been promised to them for the future. Jesus and his teachings provide the basis for their hope, but they do not anticipate some developments of the past two millennia that are therefore hard for Christians to understand and respond to. First among these is the rise of Islam, beginning with the birth of Muhammad in the 6th century AD. It too has grown into a worldwide religion and now claims some 1.9 billion adherents. It is currently growing more rapidly than Christianity. Second is the appearance of Marxism and later Neo-Marxism. When Marxism first appeared as a theory in the 19th century, it did not stand out as particularly important or threatening to Christianity. However, when it was used to justify violent revolutions and brutal dictatorships that conducted mass murder on unprecedented levels in the 20th century, it directly contradicted Christian ideals. We will now turn to a discussion of these phenomena, beginning with the rise of Islam.
End of chapter 7